Hello and welcome to episode 84 of The Dive Down, a Magic the Gathering podcast for the casual spike focused on the latest decks, trends, and strategies in Modern and Pioneer. My name is Stanislav here in Chicago, and with me on the line from Denver, Colorado, it's the one and only Shane Beeps. Stanislav, it's good to see you. My friend, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Please call me Stan. Uh, Stan, Stan. (laughs) you know what's awesome on Mondays? Besides... The heaps of lasagna that my wife dutifully prepares for me from the Stouffer's box every week. Recording our hit Magic the Gathering podcast. Man, it's always good to see your guys' faces. Also with us, the godfather, Dave Harbarger. Everyone knows that there is no lasagna on Mondays, because otherwise Garfield would love Mondays and not hate Mondays, and it would be an irreconcilable paradox. <laughs> I want to revisit that. It says, I just ate leftover curry that I made yesterday, okay? My my wife and I split chores and cooking. We're a contemporary couple. Way to yes and my good Garfield goof. Oh, well, yeah. Sorry, man. It was good on its own. It didn't need me to go on with it. Is, is lasagna actually good out of like a frozen box? Should I? Lasagna is always good. Should I be going for like some kind of frozen lasagna? Stan, it's horizontal pasta loaf. I've only ever tried the home homemade from scratch kind. No, screw that. Family size Stouffer's. It's like it's it's literally like twelve lunches. You just got to keep one in your freezer all the time in these trying times. What if I have a power outage? On this week's episode, we break down a new tournament series that you may have heard us discuss in the past, at least by mentioning it. It's been happening, and now it's over. It's the Mana Traders Tournament Series Modern Event, which took place over the weekend. Then we're bringing back our old card dive treatment to discuss the power and strategy behind Mystic Sanctuary. It's an island, so really, how good can it be? Not that good. But first, it's everyone's favorite part of the show. Many of you have been asking us to do more of these, but at this point, we're still only committed to keeping it one per episode. It's housekeeping. Hello, and thank you to the newest patron to join the Dive Down Nation, Quinn W., So happy to have you in the Slack on day one, immediately jumping in my DMs to say hi. I met Quinn at an LGS once upon a time when we used to play in those. Remember LGSs? LGSs? Good times. Also, big thanks to Sean D and Bob P for going up a tier. Bob P going up a completely unprecedented amount of support into a new made-up tier of their own design. So We're not even sure how Bob P did it, but it was done. Everyone else should do that as well. <laughs> Just type in a, an arbitrarily large number. It's very nice. You know, we haven't gotten a new review on Apple Podcasts in a while, which does not hurt our feelings. We understand it's easy to forget. Some people don't use Apple to listen to podcasts. But if you do, or even if you just like have iTunes on your computer that you never turn on because you prefer Spotify or Tidal, maybe... Give us a, a little plug, five stars, share some some thoughts about what you like about the show. If there's anything about the show that you do not like, you can just tell us that directly. Don't put that in the review. But if you do like the show, let the world know. Screaming from the rooftops. I love this podcast. And if you'd like to support us directly, you can find us at patreon.com slash the dive down. We talk about it once a week, every week. Uh, go and check it out if you would like to get some fun pins or stickers or other things that we have made. 
And uh, your support makes it possible for us to continue this podcast. It keeps our editor happy as well. So we really appreciate all the support. Thank you. And big news this week, we are talking about the Mana Traders event. And Mana Traders, due to our ongoing long-term relationship with each other, they have upped our first three months discount to 20%. So that's pretty sweet. So if you want to get 20% off your first three months of Mana Traders service, Use sign up code the dive down, all one word, uh, and it's pretty sweet. We've been using Mana Traders even before they were a sponsor of this podcast and helping us out. So, anyway, head over to manatraders.com, use sign up code the dive down, and get 20% off your first three months. 20% that's big, big news. Yeah, thank you, manatraders.com. That's one fifth. Shane, don't go too far because you're on the news desk this week for the breakdown as we talk about whatever this Mana Traders tournament was, the metagame, and some of the known streamers that participated in it. All right. Yeah, like Stan said, we're going to cover the Mana Traders series modern tournament just finished up this past weekend. If you aren't familiar with how these work exactly, there's basically an open qualifier league. And you sort of, you play that for what? Is it from the beginning of the month or like the first week of the month, Stan? Like, does it just start like first or whatever? It doesn't usually start on the first. Like the August event, I believe, starts on August 10th. And then it's like two weeks of preliminaries. So yeah, you have a couple weeks to just play games via like, a, there's like an interface for mana traders and you get paired up with people and play them and it's pretty rad. Yeah, I was just going to say, I tried to qualify. I didn't get there. But uh, the interface for doing it is excellent. Uh, If you go on Manitrader's site, there's a really nice um, kind of just page that you go to. It shows your record, your win percentage. There's a button you hit. There's directions that show you how to pair up with the right person in the tournament practice room. It's very well done, technically speaking. Yeah, it's actually impressive how seamlessly it works. As soon as the match is done, Mana Traders immediately knows what the results are. You don't actually have to report the results or anything. The one weird glitch in this system is that you're paired up in matches in the in the tournament practice rooms, and you actually have to make a comment like, I'm waiting for Stanislav. And every once in a while, including on Saturday during the Swiss portion of this tournament, strangers would just like jump into your game because either they didn't notice or don't care about the fact that you're waiting for someone in particular. Yeah, that definitely happens. But pretty seamless overall other than that. So great new, I think it's a good new platform to like have a community tournament. So I, I'm glad that Mana Traders is doing these. And I think if they do a format that you like, you should consider doing it too. Tough competition, but. Yeah. And the other thing that I want to point out is anyone can play in this, even if you're not a Mana Trader subscriber. Right. So if you actually have an empty Joe collection, you can just join the tournament. But Mana Trader subscribers get higher price support if they do well. Sweet. So if you, so basically you play a bunch of games, you can play as literally as many matches as you would like, but to move on from the open sort of qualifying league into the Swiss rounds, you're going to need to, you play like, if you play a few amount of matches, like 10 to 19 and have a 70% win percentage, you can just stop. Like where you don't, you can just stop and you're in, right? Anytime you clear any of these bars, you're in. Uh, 20 or 29, 22, 29 matches, you can get 65% win percentage or 30 plus matches and have a 60% win percentage. And they actually encourage people to keep playing because you can get sort of, you can get prizing even in the open league section, which is pretty rad. You don't have to make the Swiss. So if you make the Swiss, then that takes place in the last Saturday of each month, which was last Saturday. 
and then the top eight players move on to the finals, and that takes place on Sunday. Typical, right? Do we know anybody who qualified for the Swiss? Besides uh, Stanislav? I think I think a few of our patrons did, too. Yeah. Some some citizens in the Slack. That's true, too. Friend of the show, Aspiring Spike. Yama Killer was in there. Phil Helmuth, which is a name that we cite often from results. That's true. Uh, I'm waiting for some real man-on-the-ground kind of uh, comments coming up here, Stan. Well, I wasn't on the ground. I was really just on my couch. Your couch is on the ground? I can give you insights, sure. I mean, yeah, effectively, through the transitive properties of furniture and walls and buildings, you were on the ground. Um, and thanks again to our ongoing relationship with Mana Traders, they gave us access to the tournament data behind the scenes. And that included all the Swiss players, the records, the decks they played. And so what we did yesterday, actually, because it was Sunday, spent a bunch of time normalizing all these decks, all these deck names, so we could figure out what the Swiss meta was and then determine like what the best performing decks on the weekend were. Because, you know, some people just put in like Mana Traders tournament deck and some people put like mid-range and stuff like that. So we really wanted to see what people were actually playing with so we can get a good idea of what was going on. Yeah, Return of the Counter. It's back. I can do pivot tables too, Stan. It's not just you. I just want to be clear. I never have anything to do with anything that pivots. (laughs) Unless it's a startup. So I think what we should do is probably just go over the Swiss meta first. We can talk about um, the the metagame that people brought, the decks that people brought. Then we can talk about how they performed on the day. So here's what people actually brought to the tournament. 27 copies of Red Green Ponza. That's almost 11% of the meta. Um, and I guess instead of just the council, let's talk about percentage. Cause that's what really matters here, right? So Eldrazi Tron just behind it, 10.4%. So I don't think you mentioned there was about 250 people in the field. Oh, that's a probably good thing to mention. Yeah. 200, my deck count was 250 even. Wow. That's amazing. Or N. There you go. So we got Red Green Ponza with 27 and Eldrazi Tron with 26. Anybody want to talk about those two before we go on? Okay. You want to talk about them? Like why people might bring those two decks in particular? Yeah. I mean, they're so far above the rest of the field. It's, it's not unsurprising, right? Cause they've been considered kind of two of the stronger decks in the metagame. Like it's crazy to say like, Oh, I'm not surprised to see Ponza at 11% of a tournament, but what about Ponza? Is it, is it the, is it just the flexibility and like the land hate or what? Or just like the fact that it's kind of a, maybe sort of seen as a foil to Eldrazi Tron or. Honestly, this is kind of small brain thinking, but I feel like Ponza is just popular. People really enjoy playing it and you know, it can spike a tournament. That doesn't mean that it's like actually one of the best decks in modern this week, in my personal opinion, more on that later. But I just think like it was going to see a bunch of play rain or shine. We've still never seen it at anywhere near this number. 10, 11% is huge. So I think, I think it's most likely people who thought main deck blood moon was good. Right. And this is the shell they chose to put main deck blood moon in. And like Stan said, compound that with it being popular, and there you go. Yeah, I mean, our first four decks, I'll talk about the next two in a second, are all kind of mid-rangey to mid-rangey control, which is people just like those decks, right? I think people just like to play decks where they feel they have choices, they get to play some powerful planeswalkers, they get to make decisions and feel they have some agency in the games that are taking place, and I think that what, like, the first 32% are all decks that I think fit under that umbrella. So let's talk about the next one. Eldrazi Tron, Shane. Eldrazi Tron. It's, it's definitely a deck. It's just, I mean, it gets to play. It's, it's the Karn, the great creator deck, right? 
And Karn the Great Creator is a sweet card. And it gives you some sweet options. And Eldrazi Tron has the ability to play Chalice of the Void. We this, These are not new things, right? It, it gets to play the same sweet cards. Um, some a little bit less sweet than others, but a lot of heavy hitters, a lot of sort of hand disruption built into creatures, uh, counter spells built into artifacts. It's It's tutoring from the sideboard. A lot of good options, and it's a fun deck. There you go. Up next, Jund with nearly 7% of the meta. Um, I'll talk a little bit about the breakdown between Luris Jund and regular Jund in a minute, but... But Jund is kind of in its own little tier here. Yeah. Right? It's in between the mega mega meta decks that had 10 or 11% and above the ones that had 5% and below. So Jund is kind of on its own in slot number three. Exactly. Next up, blue-white... Azorius Shark Blade, which is basically Stone Blade with Shark Tornado. Burn after that. So there are 12 Shark Blade decks? 12 Shark Blades. One of them? Stanislav. No. Wait, I saw your name on that list. I saw it. <laughs> what a surprise. Hey, I know that guy. Yeah. And then uh, Burn, Tide. Those are both about 5%. Scape Shift at 4.4. Uh, a mix of kind of Teamer... And I think there might be some other scapeshift variants, like a, eh, but typically teamer. Is it prowess? Just behind that at four percent, and then things like amulet titan at three. Various reclamation decks, uh, teamer rack uh, is one of the more popular ones at two point eight, nearly three percent. Humans the same as reclamation. Dredge the same. Behind that, things like goblins, green tron, devoted devastation, ad nauseum. Uh, strict blue-white control, Azorius control just behind that, Sultai control, and Grixis Death Shadow, all at five copies or 2%. And then we have kind of a fairly large other section. I don't want to bore you with all these names and numbers, but I think it's pretty much decks you expect to see at a tournament, right? In, in some mix, you expect to see these decks. The Reclamation is kind of novel to me and the percentage of scape shift, but I want to let you guys respond to this a little bit before i keep talking what are, what are your thoughts on this meta so in preparation for this tournament this is more or less what i was expecting um i was specifically expecting lots of prowess etron and ponza and i figured blue white might be up there just because it's been doing really well lately came in second in like the modern championships a week or two ago so i, I think there was something to be said maybe about people who could have expected this metagame and tried to plan ahead, like go for that level three choice. I kind of think Scapeshift might have been that. Um, but at the same time, like when we actually saw this meta breakdown and when we saw like the, the Swiss breakdown on day one, I don't think there was anything there out of left field, uh, which I don't know, this kind of contributed to a, what I would say is a fun tournament where everyone was kind of packing the deck that, like they love to play and there wasn't a specific like nemesis that everyone had to pregame against except maybe Eldrazi Tron. Everyone seemed to have a good plan against Etron, and it didn't put up a lot of results in the top eight because of that. Yeah, the primary surprise for me, I think was Scapeshift at like four and a half percent and Scapeshift. If you're not super familiar is not necessarily kind of the classic Scapeshift you might be familiar with. It's turned itself into sort of an Uro Renin six based control deck that then scapeshifts off as a as a potential win con. So it's sort of a flexible control deck 
that also escape shifts, right? Yeah. It's not escape shift like you know it. It's not Titan shift like you know it, but it does have a Titan in it still. It's just a different one. Dave, any thoughts on this metagame? No, I think Stan covered it. This, uh, it's not exactly what I expected, but especially with Ponza being as high as it was, but the rest of the decks make a lot of sense to me. Yeah, I, I have a hard time feeling like Ponza, and no offense to any Ponza stands out there because we have a Ponza stand stand right here, um, is that I don't think Ponza is the type of deck that like a real like metagame leveler is going to think about bringing to this tournament, right? Maybe, maybe not. It's kind of, I think it's just like Stance. It's like, it's a fun deck that's mid-rangey and you get to cheese people out with some Blood Moon effects from time to time. I think one of the reasons why it's not necessarily a great choice to metagame a tournament is because it's not really an unknown entity anymore. You know, it's been so popular for like the last three or four months now, if, if not more, I don't know how long this year has actually been, that I feel like everyone kind of expects it in some capacity within a tournament meta and i think that in a lot of cases people even have plans to to deal with it yeah i mean you were very close to playing ponza what what really got you to change your mind at the last minute a couple things a i kind of felt like blue white was just a stronger choice because i looked at kind of like the last few weeks of tournament results really just tournament results post ban and looked at what decks were most common in the top eight and like Ponza almost absent, blue white very present. So there were two reasons why I decided to play blue white. The first reason being I actually thought it was just a stronger choice for the weekend. I was weighing it against Is it and Ponza in particular. Um, and I just felt like Ponza hasn't been putting up really strong performances post ban. And I thought Is it was gonna have a really hard time against Eldrazitron in particular. You know, um, Chalice of the Void is a card I'm super scared of. So I figured, like, blue-white control, at least maybe, in theory, I could have game against anything if I have good draws. Um, and in doing some testing in leagues, I was having pretty favorable results with and without the Shark Typhoon technology. And uh, the ultimate deciding factor was that I knew we were going to do this episode on Mystic Sanctuary, so that kind of just, like, moved the needle. I was like, well, at least I can do some science and testing ahead of our episode while also participating in a tournament with what I thought was a defensible deck. Wow, we appreciate you donating your time to science, as usual. You're welcome, David. You're welcome, Shane. And most of all, you're welcome, Dive Down Nation. All right. Spent a bunch of time in the metagame there, so let's move on to the top 32 and see how the decks performed on the day. So we can look at how many copies appeared in the top 32. We can also look at kind of the conversion rate of what percent of the decks from the field made it in to the top 32 as well. So again, this is not like a, you know, 1100 player tournament or anything like that. So our data is just fine, but at least it's somewhat meaningful and interesting to look at. So we'll talk about, let's go from top to bottom here. So we have Gruul Panza, four decks in the top 32, is a prowess with three, Scapeshift with three, Azorius Sharkblade with two Gruul Prowess, which we didn't talk about in our uh, beginning part because there's only three copies in the entire 250. Two copies made our top 32. What, what, what? So, yeah, red, red, green, or Gruul Prowess is basically, I'll talk about this in a second, but it's, it's, um, it's cool. It's not as, it's not completely new. It's not completely out of left field, but I think people are deciding to bring it back uh, for reasons I'll mention in a second. Uh, the Reclamation decks, there were two of, and 
one teamer, one bant. And these are both basically control shells that have a few wilderness reclamations and then a single nexus. And how do they go off with that exactly? Like, what are they doing with Nexus and Reclamation to to actually win the game? Just taking infinite turns, or yeah, I mean, every time I've played against this deck, it's basically an it's basically an Uro control deck with Reclamation as an additional threat, right? So sometimes you play different packages. I'm more familiar with the Saltai ones than I am with the Teamer rec ones but i believe it's likely the same game plan it's like we're gonna have ren and six and snapcaster some a little bit of that stuff uro play a good control game and then set ourselves up for nexus of the fate and if we have to do that sure one of those super killer cards in this deck is factor fiction by the way which is just like really hard to figure out what's a good pile when they're gonna have all the mana they could ever want in addition to Mystic Sanctuary, which we'll be talking about later, but it's just one of those things where like it makes Factor Fiction better because they're just going to get the card anyway. So where do you put it? You know? Yeah, it's just fiction and fiction or fact and fact. Yeah, exactly. No, you choose. You get these kind of weird gifts ungiven esque kind of things going on with it, where they put Uro. You, you know, where do you put Uro when you flip it off a of Factor Fiction? It's like not really a choice. Yeah, exactly. Every once in a while, I even see this deck running Expansion Explosion. I'm assuming primarily for the expansion side. Like the standard kill. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Jund up next, also with two copies. There's a single Luris version and a regular version in our top 32. Humans with two. Absolutely nothing new going on with humans besides uh, General Kudro still hanging out there, but that's not exactly new at this point. Two Green Tron, both with Karn the Great Creator. So there's this new, very subtle sideboard piece that I've been seeing in a lot of Tron decks, which is Wilt. Yeah, Wilt is the new, just the new action, because unlike Nature's Claim, if they don't have hate, you get to do something with it. Yep. And it's just one of those cards that, like, gets me out of nowhere when I least expect it. You're not expecting it when they have two mana held up and green mana available? Yeah, it's a new card, so I, I don't ever expect it. It's more expensive than Nature's Claim. You're just like, what do they do with two mana? Exactly. Keep your spell snares in against Tron, I guess. Dredge also with two copies. These are both uh, Silver Smote Ghoul versions, no blood ghasts, and both have Smiting Helix. There was one with one copy and one with two copies. This was definitely the more popular version of Dredge. I looked at pretty much every Dredge list out of the seven, and I think there was maybe one of, I guess you would call it sort of classic non-Silver Smoke version. So people are at least higher on the Silver Smoke Ghoul version right now. I've definitely been crushed by it a couple of times lately, including once when I was trying to qualify for the Mana Traders Day 2. And can I also just say how much it tilts me that Silver Smoke Ghoul plays with Smiting Helix? It's kind of on the nose, if you ask me. Silver silver Smited Ghoul? Yes, exactly. It's like, (laughs) uh, they knew. They knew. Also with two copies was Burn. There was a single sort of classic Boros Burn and then one Incinerator Burn. I think looking back at the list, uh, the Incinerator version was actually slightly more popular than classic in the 12 copies of Burn that people brought. So math aside, people seem to be liking the Incinerator. Two copies of Amulet Titan and then single copies of Rakdos Prowess. One of those was, uh, that was in the top eight actually. Uh, Death and Taxes, which is Eldrassi Death and Taxes version, an Obzon Delirium deck, which is basically sort of a traverse Obzon deck with Luris. So no uh, Siege Rhino Truthists out there. It's not in the deck. Sad. 
and then a single four color Death's Shadow. So let's talk about just sort of the popularity of the deck so we can talk about conversion rates in a second. So we see that Gruul Panza is continued on as the most popular deck with four copies. I guess it would make sense because there were 27 copies in, out of 250. So we would probably expect to see it do a decent version. Except. Yeah, except its conversion rate was only like 14.8%, which was one of the worst uh, out of the rest of the top 32. So is it Prowess and Scapeshift followed up with three copies each? As I mentioned, uh, those had much higher conversion rates about 30%. What's cool about this Gruel Prowess deck that had two copies was um, back in late April, Kenan Diab on Good Grief Games uh, website, which is actually a pretty cool website if you haven't checked that out. Uh, he wrote up an article about this deck, and he, but he actually credited his friend Christoph Schlom with a lot of the tech here. And the goal of this deck is to have a primarily sort of a red prowess game plan that's supported by Tarmogoyf and Hooting Mandrills, because those don't get hurt by Prowess Hate, like Damping Sphere or Oriok Champion. They're not even going to get hit by like a Glorybringer from Ponza. So it's sort of a meta choice, right? Where it's like, I'm going to I'm gonna beat the mirror with my huge creatures. I'm going to avoid just the, the, the static Prowess Hate that I'm expecting to see. I'm not going to get dunked on by a lot of the, the red damage and Glorybringer flying, you know, exertion from Ponza. I can trade with a, a reality smasher if i have a hooting mandrels out there that's a five five uh, delve creature so there's a lot of options here that make sense hooting mandrels is a four four don't lie to me stanislav why would i lie okay i'm gonna double block with my tarmogoyf and hooting <laughs> mandrels and trade that off but yeah it's, it's an interesting option it seems like a cool metagame piece if this is I, I don't think the metagame will change very much in the near future so it's good to be reminded that this deck exists and if you're into prowess then maybe give it a try you get to you get to at least play hooting mandrels yeah it does make it extra vulnerable to graveyard hate is something worth worth thinking about but uh you know so what's cool about this Rakdos prowess deck or Rakdos prowess if you're fancy um black it's basically red prowess, right? But black gives access to things like main deck clean to dust, of which there were three. There were three fatal push, uh, four thought seas, an unearth, a couple Coligans command. In the sideboard, there's things like infernal reckoning, collective brutality, and also Luris, of course. So another cool tech piece, and just a cool tech deck, and played by a good player in uh, Doomwake. So a lot of these Luris decks are running Seal of Fire as this repeatable um, shock effect, basically. Also, because it's enchantment, sometimes it helps fuel a Tarmogoyf if if you're fancy. Dave, I'm I'm curious. Do you think Seal of Fire is good enough to maybe find a home in Blue Red Prowess, or why doesn't it currently? No, because you can't recur it. That's that's the only reason. So having it with, like, is it still playing? Sorry, this deck is still playing Luris, right? Yeah. 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 That's that's why. Is that Seal of Fire is just really only good if you're gonna reuse it over and over again. Because I think if you were playing blue red and you wanted the extra burn, you would play Burst Lightning sure. instead for the mana sink potential of the the kicker. So I, I don't think Seal of Fire is gonna get there. So I sort of broke the conversion rate data into three categories, right? And it's sort of potentially new legit decks 
the good performers and the underperformers. And our potentially new legit decks include the the Gruel Prowess I just mentioned. And although we don't have a ton of data to work with yet, um, I think Rakdos Prowess is also a cool deck. So what what's going on here? We have nine Prowess decks in the top, uh, top 32, right? Not, sorry, not nine. We have six. It's an upside down nine. Um, nice. <laughs> in, the, in the top 32. But they're three different kind of guilds. Yeah. What, what do you think is up with that? It's got to be, I mean, I think, like I said, with Gruul, it's like, it looks like a metagame choice where it's like my, my green beaters can shore up a potential weakness in my deck. Yeah. I mean, I think that, I think they're all metagame choices. The, the, the question I have is like, how are we, I mean, it's really this weird kind of like Soulscar Mage Monastery Swift Spear pillar of modern emerging now that for a long time was just mono red. You know, I mean, Luris kind of kicked it over to red black for a while back during the real heyday of the companion era, but now it's just kind of like there's all this iteration and innovation going on in that with that archetype. It's pretty interesting to see cheap spells plus cheap creatures equals lots of options. Do you think it's kind of the best cheap spell shell basically? And so people are iterating on that. In term, yeah, I mean, it's 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 like it's like what a creature storm, right? Yeah, I mean, that's kind of how I felt about it too. Yeah, you know, modern always has like at least one good to great linear aggro deck, and right now I think what we're seeing is like the inclusion of things like lava dart, um, and you know, depending on your variety of prowess, like you have either Luris or um, Tarmogoyf or Stormwing. Like you have all these potential like big mana payoffs that really only cost two mana, but are like really big beaters. So I think when it comes down to it, you know, we said it's a meta choice and it's really up to you to decide whether you think it's more important to play like more uh, mid-range interaction in the black version, maybe more explosive game ones and reactive game twos with the blue version, or just try to like beat ponza with the green version yeah i wonder if ryan overturf is is sad somewhere as he looks at all these lists that are not just mono red but anyway so next up we have what i guess just called the good performers on the weekend uh is it prowess scape shift the reclamation decks humans green tron dredge amulet titan and four color shadow i'll put about 25 to 33 percent of their players into the top 32 again small sample size but this weekend, these decks all did just fine, if not quite good. And our underperformers, Eldrazi Tron, if you didn't notice, was nowhere in our top 32 after being the second most played deck in the field. The top performer was exactly 33rd place. Yikes. Been there. I've been the 33rd place player. My heart goes out to you. Really disappointing. Why do we think this is the case? Were people just prepared? Does, I mean, I've heard that Gruul Ponza does not just roll Eldrazi Tron. I heard it's a fa- pretty even matchup. So it's not like, you know, Gruul just, just kicked its butt. I think everyone is expecting a ton of Etron. And I think everyone either played a deck that was good against it or had a strong plan against it. And, you know, Etron just had like a big target on its forehead. A big target on its weird spindly legs. <laughs> <laughs> it's weird thought not legs i love that card it's so funny looking uh also not doing super well in the conversion rate was azoria Sharkblade, burn and especially jund 
Surprise. We're also not particularly impressive. Uh, they put up about 12 to 17% of their players into the top 32. Yeah, these conversion rates always get hard, right? Because the list of decks that you just put here are five of the top six decks that reported in the general metagame. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. There's only so much space in the top 32 for decks to even get there and so i don't think we should be too surprised that a lot of the decks that had a lot of pilots don't have great conversion rates yeah. most of the time right occasionally there's a tournament that's just busted open where it's like oh 70 percent of the top 32 is is it phoenix or something weird like that happens or hogak i guess specifically would be one where it really broke it but there's only so much room and like there's enough variance in modern and and you know room for skill in modern that deck advantage counts but it's not i don't think it's as much as sometimes people think it is unless you're playing mono white tokens yeah i agree dave i mean this is this is definitely not the highest quality data so i would take it as information and not law yeah let's do the top eight yeah let's do it because we're already at like what 35 minutes on this yeah crazy so top eight First place, Lucilla on Rug Scapeshift, aka Teamer Scapeshift. It's like I said, it's a control deck with Uro, few Mystic Sanctuaries. There's my cat. Hello. And a Scapeshift uh, Wincon. Second place, Rodney Bedell on Amulet Titan with Karn the Great Creator. Our third and fourth place players, uh, Nicholas de Prada Farach on Dredge, and Devin O'Donnell, uh, also known as Doomwake on the aforementioned Rakdos Prowess deck. Again, this dredge version was the Silver Smoke version. No blood gassed. Fifth through eighth place, Brandon Pascal on Gruel Prowess, David Helfenstein on Gruel Ponza, Octavio Morara Lima Jr. on Jun Shadow, and Ganyan Chien China, I would guess, on Is It Prowess. So yeah, we have some real names, some screen names, so forgive me for the mix there, but that's the data we had. So that's our top eight. An interesting, we had good variety of decks. I think in the top eight, in the top 32, in the metagame. Three prowess decks in the top eight. One of each flavor for the week. Oh, it's pretty rad. Interestingly. It's like a Neapolitan ice cream of one drops. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, I think this is a cool top top eight. Cool top 32. I mean, it looks like a pretty good tournament overall. I mean, it makes me feel like the meta is doesn't really have anything that's that like scary in it as far as overpower or out of whack despite what i might say in the next hour after this but we don't think prowess is a scary deck just of how fast and explosive and versatile it can be i mean band scary mm-hmm. meta share scary i mean there might come a time where manamorphos ends up at the top of that ban list and that would certainly put a dent into prowess but i i don't you know, I think that there's enough metagaming that can go on against Prowess to uh, not be scared of it as far as like a meta threat goes. I wonder if the lack of Eldrazi Tron in this top 32 and the presence of Prowess in the winner's bracket maybe has something to do with everyone else was able to get Tron out of the way for the Prowess players to kind of just like sneak in under that deck. So that if you did well with Prowess in the early rounds, you managed to like avoid the Etron bracket, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, the only thing I'd say is that the green deck is probably pretty good against Etron because you can play Hooting Mandrills and Tarmogoyfs that'll help you some and, you know, your, your delving threats and stuff. So I, I think that that increased CMC might help you a bit there yeah and the black deck is probably not terrible either because of things like uh you know the the kind of 
hand interaction that's often in the black deck. So maybe that's part of the reason that those cards are there. Also, I haven't tried either red, green or red, black. Um, maybe someday. Maybe we can do an episode on the Neapolitan flavors of, pot, of prowess. Yeah, that sounds fun. No, um, no blue white in the top eight. It's kind of interesting, but there weren't a ton in the top 32 either. So yeah, we only had two. two. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe it was a bad choice for Stan after all. Well, mathematically, yes. <laughs> Skill wise, we always can cut on you, Stan. Thank you. Yeah, that's it. Thanks to Mana Traders for giving us, uh, I don't, it wasn't exclusive access by any means, but some special access behind the scenes and letting us do a little bit of analysis on this. And uh, we appreciate it. Do we want to talk about this last tab that you have here for a second? Oh, and more tabs. Well, we got one more. There's a couple of things to talk about here really fast, I guess. Okay, do it. And wasn't Lee McLeod of, of Grindcast nice enough to share this data with us? Yeah, yeah. Lee and CCR and Collins, and I don't know if anybody else, they were doing uh, live commentary on the Mana Traders Twitch stream this weekend. And as usual, it was quality and interesting. And they also got some data from them, and they did some analysis and some pivots of their own. And they, they, yeah, he shared with me today kind of like this most played card spreadsheet, and there's some interesting things in there for sure. Is that what you're getting at? Yeah. What is what's interesting, you Dave? Besides lightning, you you love those lightning bolts. I mean, lightning bolts still at the top of the list with 370 main deck copies. That is a lot for 250 decks. So yeah, much. I mean, the next played, the next most played card is Wooded Foothills at 283. Yeah. And if you look at the next most played non-land card, it's Opt at 194. And then, surprisingly, the third through fifth most played cards had 140 copies with Bloodbraid Elf, Cryptic Command, and Path to Exile. I thought the, I thought the next most played card after Bolt was Vela Summer with 209. It's sideboards. That's a side, yeah. In the sideboard, yeah, there's just, there's just a ton. Like, I mean, we're in the sideboards are getting pretty interesting because of the powerful color hate we're seeing too. I wanted to, I did want to talk about that where it's like, look at, look at the cards that are just hate cards. And that's kind of what you need in a format like modern, right? Is like, either you need to cast the broadest brush, you know, <laughs> you need to use the broadest brush that you can to paint the biggest Bob Ross trees possible, or you need to have the exacto knife where you're, you're cutting in there, you're using the veil of summer, using aether gust, you're using relic, even Ashiok. Ashiok is a little bit more broad, right? But it's so powerful against things like amulet Titan and uh, dredge that these, these sideboard cards are just haymakers ceremonious rejection. Like you said, stand against Eldrazi Tron 109 copies, our fifth most played sideboard card. Three of those were mine. Anger of the gods. <laughs> 109s stand, stand brought a weird hit though. Via a mana traders bug is able to play 109 copies of ceremonious rejection. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is, this is what's, what's surprising to me and perhaps it shouldn't be was I was looking at the creatures and the creatures in modern are so weird right now in terms of just frequency where it's like they're either our prowess creatures or there are gruel creatures or Eldrazi Tron and some Uro, but like, they're not the, the, the Jund creatures that you would expect of your, there's not a lot of like, you know, hunt masters or scavenging oozes or things like that. Like they're just big. They're either really big and have something that's stapled onto them, or they're just our prowess creatures. Like I just, it doesn't look like a creature format to me. You know what I mean? Maybe I'm crazy. If I'm reading this correctly, it looks like the most popular creature 
It was Blood Braid Elf. Exactly. Yeah, with 140 copies. Likely spread between all those Ponza and Jun decks, which were among the three most popular decks of the event. Okay, but then, but then, but like what I'm saying is like, look at just the sideboard list. There are more copies of Relic and Progenitus in the, in the sideboards than there are Blood Braid Elves in the main deck. Hmm. It's just like, it's so weird to like think about formats in that fashion where it's like, it's not really a super, I mean, th- there are a lot of board based decks that do play to the board and want to win through combat damage, but it's not. It's not the way this format is is played out. Like if you looked at something like Pioneer, I would imagine that if you eliminate the lands, that we'd have a lot more creatures in our top 100 cards of a tournament. But it could be wrong. Yeah. I mean, we do still have a lot of creature removal at the top. So I, being able to deal with creatures matters. The uh, the Trinity of Lightning Bolt, Path of Exile, and Fatal Push are still in the top 10 of of cards played in the, in the tournament main deck. So I wouldn't get too far out with that it just maybe there's a lot of decks that use different creature suites so but i will say this modern to me looking at this metagame seems pretty fun right now and so i'm glad to keep getting in there and keep playing over the next uh weeks and and months uh until something inevitably comes along to mess it up uh but we'll see so we've gone this long 10 seconds i love these takes what deck would you play next week Either because you like it or you think it's because it's good or people want to be prepared for it. I would still play as it prowess. It's because you like it, you know it, you have reps with it, it's got results. Yeah, it's done fine. It's done better than I thought it was going to. I got totally blasted in the qualifying league with it, but I'd still go. I think I would too. I, I think it might be among the best decks in the format right now in the waning days of July, which is not something that I... I, I didn't necessarily think it was among the best decks last week. I thought it was very popular, but now I'm starting to see that it's very powerful and the fact that it can pivot and leverage different colors uh, based on other metagame forces, I think is something that just makes prowess a really powerful ability and those eight prowess creatures really important. And is it um, maybe is among the more consistent and most explosive, explosive versions of that archetype. How about you, Shane? What would you play? I'm kind of, I'm really feeling like I want some Green Tron reps back, like with Karn the Great Creator, but also I have been uh, wanting to play some humans again as well. I think, you know, humans is always good and I like playing it, so why not? Or I'd probably, I'd test out Is It Prowess because I like that style of deck as well and learning it seems good, like learning it even more strongly. There you have it. Two weeks ago, I was the only one. Last week, there were two of us. Now there are three of us. Look at that. All right, that wraps up our breakdown for this week. We're going to take a quick break, and when we return, we are going to fetch a non-basic island in our dive down on Mystic Sanctuary. Stay with us. And we're back. So... This week, for our dive down section, we're going to return to something that we really haven't done in a while. I don't think we've done it this year at all. And it's a deep dive on a single card. In the past, we've done this on Surgical Extraction and Chalice of the Void, but metagame forces have changed. And the card we're talking about is a potentially powerful enabler across a number of different strategies, though it tends to see the most play in modern right now. Uh, Maybe sees play in legacy certainly not seeing play in popper anymore mm-hmm. it's so strong that well-known magic pro player and i think now watsy employee sam black recently had this to say without arkham's astrolabe 
These decks will be considerably weaker, but this card remains one of the best in modern, maybe even the best, and will continue to define control decks until it is banned itself. Note the use of until. Yeah, that's right. Look out, Dive Down Nation. We are about to curse another card to the ban list by naming something after it. This time, just an episode and not a piece of branded Patreon swag. So have you figured out what the, what the card is yet, people uh, people of Earth? Well, I mean, we wrote this as a tease, but we already said the card name so many times. Do you think people don't know? I, I just wonder. How about everyone says it together in unison right now? Mm-hmm. One, two, three. It's Mystic Sanctuary. Oh, Shane, oh. you get a bad grade. Oh, man. Shane, it sounds like you're not... Wrong episode. It sounds like you're not familiar with Mystic Sanctuary, so... For the uninitiated out there, will you read this card for us? Okay. Mystic Sanctuary, land, island type. You can tap it for blue. It's weird. Um, So Mystic Sanctuary enters the battlefield tapped unless you control three or more other islands. When it enters the battlefield untapped, you may put target instant or sorcery card from your graveyard on top of your library. That sounds bad. You're just making your library bigger. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, in all seriousness, I do know what this card is, okay? So what this was was part of a cycle of typed common lands in the notably underpowered set, Throne of Eldraine. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the other ones do things like give you a 1-1 counter on a creature. They put a creature back on top of your graveyard. They maybe give you a free 1-1 token. They might give you some food tokens, very useful now in our modern metagame. What Mystic Sanctuary does is let you recur any instant or sorcery card you want from your graveyard. And people pretty much identified that this was the most powerful option. But the question was just how powerful would it end up being? And what I love doing is kind of checking my memory of what people said about a card or what I thought about a card or things like that, like what takes people had, right? And I, for me, it was somewhat tempting to remember a lot of people being somewhat skeptical of the potential of this card or kind of overlook the power of this card. Is in modern. that because you were pretty skeptical about this card? What do they call that? Uh, bias? <laughs> so Hindsight bias, I guess. Yeah, in, in researching for the episode today, it turns out that that was not really the case. Like some people were doubtful, right? Like they, and most did have the same sort of doubt I had. And that was the limitation and risk of having to have three or more other islands in play for this to come in untapped and to have any effect, right? So it's going to look sketchy in your opener if you, and if you didn't have really good lines to get your mana online, like you hit your colors and hit your land drops, like in something like uh, Azorius Control, right? And even McWinsauce, who's a pretty decent Azorius Control player, tweeted, pretty sure Mystic Sanctuary is very overrated. I have 11 non-island lands. The situation of bouncing it with Cryptic and a Planeswalker on board is something that you're already probably winning. Castle's fine. It's obviously better in Stoneblade with equipment than blue-white control. But before the set was even released, like Patrick Chapin had a, written an article entitled uh, Mystic Sanctuary is a Messed Up Magic Card. A few weeks later, Sam Black wrote, people are sleeping on Mystic Sanctuary, uh, even sort of piggybacking on his uh, fellow SEG writer uh, there. And what I liked about Chapin's article is he outlined the various aspects of Sanctuary that makes it messed up, right? Yeah, and we're going to talk about this in a little bit, unless we want to go into them now. Okay, well, then I'll, I'll just bounce through it. Yeah. yeah, there's no reason to repeat it, right? Yeah. Why, why not? 
What's cool though, is people did start testing and using this card immediately and saw results. It was mostly a one of at first, so that we saw it being tested in control shells like uh, Is it and Grixis. Uh, our buddy Aspiring Spike, he 5 0 with a Grixis control list just in the first week of this card's release. That surprises no one. Uh, Blue Moon, including our buddy the Pen Sword, various shells like that. Right? Uh, you remember that Grixis control deck? No. I'm going cl- to click on it right now. It had into the story and it was so, so beautiful. <laughs> um, but the first time I could find this used as a four of in a tournament or a league deck, who do you think it was? I mean, it's in the notes, so you know. I was surprised by this answer. It's LSV. Yeah. I'm, I'm guessing this was for some sweet stream. I'm sure people really enjoyed watching this. Uh, he put four of them into a Fires of Invention, Dictative Crufix, Howling Mind, Time Warp, Savor the Moment, Taking Turns style deck. Like, who needs to untap when you have Fires of Invention, my friends? That, that was a modern deck, right? Yeah, I think it was. I'm, I'm really hoping so. Yep, modern. October 8th, 2019. Wow. The co-host of Constructed Resources himself. Yeah, I don't... Is he on any other podcasts? He just streams, right? <laughs> I think he runs Channel Fireball. Oh, okay. Uh, following that, a noted MTGO grinder Doom Switch, not to be confused with Doom Wake. He ran a playset in Azorius Control, also in early October. And it's been showing up as like a three or four of a surprising amount of time since then. So people were really quickly realizing that even four sanctuaries wasn't necessarily too much to succeed with this card. And it's really been a breakout staple of modern since its release, mostly not as a playset, of course, but it's really a powerful utility land in all sorts of decks. And we'll talk about why that's the case uh, with much more experienced control mages, Dave and Stanislav. But like, you know, we see this in control shells of all color combinations, right? Like I was looking through the empty, like let's, I'm going to give a quick shout out to goldfish here because you can use their like card search functionality to go back through their archive of decks and you can just look at time spans and number of times it appeared and it lets you just see evolution of decks and frequency of appearances and it just, it's totally awesome. So I don't know what I do without access to that. But, you know, you saw it in those control decks to Wurza decks and Simic Urza decks and Snowblade and Snow Control. Miracles had like a brief reappearance. Breach decks, Nexus decks, Scapeshift decks, Taking Turns, Delver Tempo decks. If it has blue and it's moderately interactive or moderately controlling, modern decks are running this card. And that's really what Sam Black predicted, right? Just after the card was released, he predicted the ubiquity of this card. You know, he said like, you know, if your deck contains cryptic, your mana base should be built that you can play at least one of these. And that's just a starting point, right? Like he, he thinks that that's just the surface that was being scratched. Like, right. He says these decks should play this and it makes them better, but how much better will this change the format? I think it will. And I think that his prediction came to fruition, but what exactly are people doing with this card? Why is it such a powerful addition to these strategies that I kind of rattled off earlier? Dave, Stan, I need your help here. Um, I don't use, I don't think I've ever played this land before this past week. So help me understand why this is good, why our listeners and the nation should understand why this is good and how they should use it. Shane, thank you for that lovely jaunt down memory lane. Uh, I think before we get to exactly the game plans that mystic sanctuary fits into what we want to do is talk about all of the different aspects of the card 
that make it amazing and also, or in Patrick Chapin's words, make it messed up. Um, I think that we want to do this not to belabor the point about this card or fill airtime because you know that we don't need help filling airtime, but really to help people identify cards on their own going forward that have potential to break out in the same way that Mystic Sanctuary has. So let's go through this really quick. The number one thing that Mystic Sanctuary does that makes it so important and so powerful is that it is a permanent type that has a spell-like effect, okay? There's lots of these in Magic. Eternal Witness is one of these, you know, like a come into play ability, all these different things. It's a thing, you know, it's not only what it does that makes it powerful, it's how it does it. Because what Mystic Sanctuary does when it comes into play and triggers is it casts a card called Noxious Revival, or also known as Reclaim. Chapin mentioned this in the article that Shane referenced. And you know what? Noxious Revival and Reclaim are not cards that people run in their decks. Why don't they run Noxious Revival? Usually. Hmm. Because it's not worth a card. Exactly. Because on its own, it is not worth a card. And so there's such a fine line between an effect that is worth a card on its own versus an effect that totally makes something super powerful when it's put onto something else that is worth a card. You know, Storm runs Noxious Revival because it's a part of gifts packages. And I, I don't even know if it's doing that that much anymore but it was just a nice little fun tricky thing that you could do to make someone have a bad pick out of um gifts but having on a permanent of course makes this effect a lot easier to reuse and it has no downside because you are getting a card out of it by playing a land the second big important part here is that of course it's not just on any permanent type it is on a land so it's free essentially there's no mana cost. It's just gravy on something you want to be doing anyway, especially in a control deck, right? You want to play lands every turn in a control deck. That's part of the advantage that you that you build up over time in a control deck is having more mana and better ways to use your mana. It does have a tough restriction. You know, three other islands isn't the easiest thing in the world to do because that means that you will have four islands in play, four lands with type island in play when this comes into play. But it's well worth it when the upside is that you get is that you get the chance to control the card you're going to draw the next turn. Yeah, that restriction worth pointing out. It's not only important to the effect, but it's also important to actually get that resource the turn you play it. Because playing this on turn two or three, just because it's the only land you have in hand, necessary in some games. Like sometimes you just have to do that after you mulligan. But it feels pretty bad. It feels like not a, always taking a turn off, but it can be a huge setback in modern in particular. Yeah, absolutely. And then the last thing is that not only are all these all these couple of things true, that it's a free spell on a land that you want to play anyway that's going to provide you with the resource, even if you don't get the trigger, although playing it tapped is bad, like Stan said. The land is typed for some reason. And this is the big thing that everybody pointed out right after the spoiler showed up is that it is type island. And so that means you get to fetch it. In modern, this is hugely important because it pushes it over the line of being a card that's able to be, that's good. Because you might play this still, even if it wasn't, wasn't typed, you know, maybe as a one of in a deck that was controlling that wanted to recycle some cards. Being able to fetch it means that it becomes a pillar of an entire kind of game plan package on its own. You are going to run 
the Mystic Sanctuary package as part of some of your decks because you get to control when you get it because you don't want to draw this card. You know, on its own, you really kind of want to fetch it more than anything else. I mean, sure, you're happy to have it in a high land hand. You're ready. You're happy to draw it mid game, but you don't want it in your opening hand. And so it has this weird distinction of being a land that you mostly don't want to draw in the opening hand, but you love to draw in turn six. And fetching really helps smooth that out. And I think that's one of the reasons why we very seldom see decks that run four copies these days. Yeah. Just to reduce the chances of seeing it in that opening hand or drawing it early. Yeah, absolutely. I think that a lot of the decks that I looked at over the last week had it as a two of, which seems pretty powerful and, um, you know, unlikely to draw it early, but likely to be able to fetch it up late. You know, it's so important to when you're playing with Mystic Sanctuary to just remember that it is a fetchable asset and not, you know, just blow off your fetch lands randomly uh, anytime that you feel like you just want to move ahead on lands being in play. They're spells. Your fetch lands all become spells later in the game. So that's all the parts of the card, right? That's a land. It's a land. It's a spell. It's a tutorable thing. All forms a powerful engine to do a lot of stuff in modern. So David, what exactly does this card enable then? I mean, in my mind, there's really two plans that you execute because of Mystic Sanctuary or two, two thoughts behind playing the card. One is you play it for value. And what that means is you use it as extra copies of spells you already want to play or similar things as part of your greater plan. You want to get more value out of the cards you've already had. You want to get more value out of your lands. That's what you do. The second thing is you can play it in a bunch of loops. We haven't talked about this until just now, but because Mystic Sanctuary is a permanent with a powerful effect, there's always the potential and maybe even the inevitability that it will end up as a combo or loop piece in some form or another. People love nothing more than finding ways to recur cards that have good comes into play effects, and this is definitely a big one. It turns out that the combos here are just really powerful. It's an island, so it goes with blue cards, right? Mm-hmm. And so people have created different decks to take advantage of the loops it generates, particularly with Cryptic Command, though there are others. I've heard of that card. Yes. So those are the two general things that it does. Top-level game plan. Value, loop. So before we get down to like the loop idea, why don't we start with talking about what decks that are playing it on a value plan generally look like or what they're what they're executing it for so i think the first time anyone really reads the card you know and you kind of see that value plan it's essentially i can use this card to get back some really powerful effect that i've already cast one time to do the things that i want to do again Um, so it's almost like a delayed snapcaster in that regard but it also has like a variety of upside beyond what snapcaster can enable And it's true in one sense, but it's also a little less true in another, which I think the first question to ponder when we talk about Mystic Sanctuary is whether this is actually card advantage in the way that Snapcaster so often can be. In my personal opinion, and I think we agree on this, is that it is not, in the strictest sense, a card advantage tool by itself. I mean, I definitely don't think it's card advantage either. You can use it to get card advantage. But the card in itself is not so much about card advantage as it is about maybe what someone would consider card selection or just a little bit of a a repurpose. 
you know, there's a handful of cards that are generally played with Sanctuary to enable two-for-ones or strict card advantage, and that would be Cryptic. You know, if you want Cryptic Command to, say, counter a spell and also draw a card, that would be card advantage. Doesn't let you loop it if you do that, but that is a two-for-one. Um, there is Archmage's Charm. You know, that's a card that people have kind of taken an affinity to finally because of Mystic Sanctuary, I think. The three blue pips have gotten a little less worrisome for people in the builds. And so using its draw two mode has become something that a lot of blue base control decks are doing now. And then, you know, someday, uh, you know, right now people are using it with Frantic Inventory to be able to cast Frantic Inventory a number of times. Someday you might even decide that you want to recur a Coligan's Command with it in some kind of wild deck but those are the main blue options that people are using right now i mean how much is the effect itself worth yeah this is something that i i thought about a lot whether we can even like ascribe a mana cost to what is ultimately free on mystic sanctuary because the thing that it reminds me of in in addition to noxious revival is that it's kind of sort of a tutor and it's not exactly a tutor but because like it doesn't put a card in your hand from your library but on the other hand it is cheaper and it provides an on-demand activation because of that interaction with fetch lands um so other examples of this effect noxious revival either costs a green mana or two life so here's you know one option so this is you know a mana cheaper than that you know, other playables in modern that we see, Academy Ruins has this effect, but it's only for artifacts and it costs mana. It basically costs three mana since you also have to tap the Academy Ruins. You know, Scheming Symmetry has a similar effect, but it's symmetrical uh, and you can't get a discount. Like you always have to play Symmetry for a single black mana. So though you have to know where those opportunities are, um, you know, potentially to loop this card, it's not always how you're using Sanctuary, and it's not really a win condition for the decks that use it. It's kind of, as David said, like one of your value engines that you can put into a deck that gives you loops, that also lets you do this like, you know, ref- effect that we see elsewhere in Modern, but at the cheapest possible rate that we've ever experienced. Yeah. And so if it's not card advantage, the next question I guess we would ask is, how, how do we quantify or describe kind of in detail exactly what you get out of Mystic Sanctuary when you're playing it in the value plan, in the fair game plans. It sounds obvious. You're getting to play awesome cards again. But what do you get out of that? You get a few couple of specific benefits that I think are worth talking about that help, I think should help understand why this effect is is so powerful. The first thing I would say is that it gives you card selection. You know, we mentioned this before, it's not card advantage so much as it is letting you pick something out, a specific tool for a specific time, especially if you have a lot of uh, kind of choices in your graveyard already. So in modern, where there are a lot of mid-range and control matchups that use one-for-one interactions really well, being able to add a specific tool back into your hand for the trade for a draw and a land trigger is really powerful because you know exactly that you're getting a card that you need for the moment that you're in. Removal that you've already played once is likely good in the matchup that you've you played it, right? Like getting Fatal Push in your graveyard, you're probably happy to play Fatal Push again at some point in the game. If not, you'll side it out later. Yeah. I mean, I think it's also worth noting that 
this card also provides just sheer consistency, you know. I think one of the obvious ways to think about this effect is, you know, that Sanctuary lets you play the same card at least two times without counting on variants to find it. So this even gives you extra utility if you're playing something that you only have one or two copies of in your deck. Uh, sometimes Mystic Sanctuary functionally serves as the extra copies of whatever that tool is. And, you know, this ultimately guarantees an action card when a draw could have been air and basically eliminating any math or, or variance from the short-term outcome of the game, which is, you know, hard to do in, in modern, or at least when you are doing it, you have to spend a card to do that. Here, you're not really spending a card. You're using your resources to that effect. Yeah. So the other thing is that this is where, you know, this consistency bucket is where being able to fetch it really shines because each, you know, this card is fetchable. And so by transitive property, every fetch land in your deck becomes an extra copy of one of these tools. So like Stan said, your one or two of suddenly becomes a three or four of if you want it to because you can fetch it you can play mystic sanctuary replay it maybe you go fetch another one it's one of those things i was mentioning earlier that you really have to shift your mindset a little bit to remember that when you have mystic sanctuary when you draw fetch lands late they aren't blank cards they are as good as any spell that's in your graveyard can be in that moment so there's i think there's an asterisk there that's that's worth bringing up here because you know we haven't even touched on it yet Mystic Sanctuary does operate on a delay often, right? You're putting that lib that card on top of your library. So on the one hand, you're guaranteed to draw action. But on the other hand, you sometimes are incapable of putting that card in your hand when you need it uh, immediately. Fortunately, there are ways to mitigate that cost. Like Opt is one. You know, if you're running Archmage's Charm or Remand in your decks, uh, which Mystic Sanctuary decks sometimes, if not often, do, that helps. Even Shark Typhoon is a good way to do that, to just, like, draw it so that you still then get to go a little deeper in your deck, which Mystic Sanctuary does prevent. Uh, even Planeswalkers. So, like, Jace, Teferi, uh, I don't know, other Planeswalkers that draw cards. I'm sure they exist. The big Teferi. Being able to fetch uh, Mystic Sanctuary during your main phase or during your turn when you can activate a planeswalker maybe during your opponent's turn if you're playing that new to fairy <laughs> that gives you like some tools to to play around the inherent setbacks of mystic sanctuary but you don't always have the tools to do that in hand yeah but it just ups and smooths out math again like we were talking about earlier where it just makes it a lot more knowable what you're going to do on so you're basically telling me that i want to i get some consistency and some selection on my graveyard with this card and it's tutorable via a fetch land like why else are people running this though there has to be some other reasons right or no i mean that's is that good enough there definitely don't have to be other reasons i'll i'll say like that that is almost good enough on its own to be worth it because remember it's just a land it doesn't really cost you that much to play one or two of these with a fetch land mana base uh to use it what do you think, Stan? I don't know if we've ever see decks that are using Mystic Sanctuary without the potential for an added upside beyond that consistency, though. So, you know, the next thing we want to talk about are some of the synergies that this card enables. And I'm pretty sure that when you have Mystic Sanctuary, not only is it free, but 
using powerful cards that synergize with it are also sometimes on plan with the type of decks that Mystic Sanctuary Mystic Sanctuary works best in. So I kind of think they have to go hand in hand. I'm not sure you're going to play Mystic Sanctuary without something like Cryptic or Deprive. Makes sense. Why don't you talk about some of those synergies, Stan? Mm-hmm. Sure. So the level one play, I think, is that it synergizes with the cards that you put into your graveyard or want to be in your graveyard. So sometimes even like a Thought Scour deck, which is so often used to mill yourself this lets you have extra selection from your mystic sanctuaries even if you haven't started playing cards to put into the graveyard already so you know you don't have to always count on your fatal push to be cast to get into your graveyard something like thought scour helps put it there as well another option is frantic inventory and mystic sanctuary shines in these frantic decks when you have already cast a couple of these. So each individual frantic inventory starts to be a two for one. So even if you only have one other frantic in, in your graveyard, and then you put a second one on top with your sanctuary, that's two mana to draw two cards above rate for modern above rate for magic. Most of the case. Yeah. Two mana at instant speed too, which is really amazing. I think the level two there is that it lets you control the card that is also on top of your deck. And the most obvious deck that comes to mind for me when we think about the potential ceiling of an effect like this are decks that use miracles. Terminus, probably the most popular miracle card in modern, maybe other formats. And one of the challenges with Terminus is getting it on top of your deck when you need it. And even though there's often cases where you kind of have to get lucky and draw it just to get that first Terminus effect, once you've cast Terminus once, ideally to good effect, you can then cast additional Terminus on demand exactly when you need them. Yeah, so you can go Terminus and then wait for your opponent's turn. If they cast some haste creatures or something, you can fetch up Mystic Sanctuary, play Opt Terminus again, and you get this kind of like really... I imagine, annoying play pattern for some people. Yeah. And then finally, the level three, as I see it, is that it lets you play cards that return lands to your hand for added value. So most famously, as part of a few different loop engines, but even in really weird ways with random cards in modern, such as like trade routes. Yeah. Trade routes, if you don't remember, is an enchantment from Mercadian Masks that is in 8th and ninth edition. Chapin actually name-checked it in the article that uh shane referred to earlier as well it has an activated ability of one generic mana that says return target land to your hand and uh yeah that would just let you do it over and over again by itself if that was all you wanted to do but there's so so much more that you can do with this kind of combo loop territory so i think we should put a pin in that for a minute because there's one more thing i want to talk about before we get out of the value area Hold on, but so so let me let me just check my my thinking here, right? So what I'm hearing you guys say is that this is a value card that you can that combines controlling when and what that value is. And like you you get aspects of card selection, of deck consistency, card synergy that you've built into your deck and might want to rebuy. So it's just sort of like like it's it's a value engine with a lot of control built into it because of the way modern works, especially with fetch lands. Yeah. And it's free asterisks. All right. How free is it? Yeah, that's the last thing I think we should talk about as we talk about running Mystic Sanctuary with a fair kind of game plan in mind. 
for the moment. And that is, you know, people think of this as a free roll, but also you could see one of the main hesitations from, for example, a player like McWinsauce, like Shane talked about earlier, was the fact that uh, the mana base, your mana base obviously has to be twisted a lot to make it work. Entering tapped is not that bad of a downside, but sometimes it's still pretty bad, especially in modern, where especially for a land that only taps for one color of mana. So I don't know what uh, st- I'm gonna let Stan talk about this for a minute. But how do we need to build our mana bases, and how much do we need to twist them in order to make Mystic Sanctuary work? So one of the cool things I think about Mystic Sanctuary is that it doesn't have to add a land to your deck. You know, it's not like you're playing a 24th land in a 23 land deck. You're really just replacing it with something else that may have given you better selection at mana, like some kind of like dual land um, or, you know, fast land. Um, but it's just taking that slot, right? So when we look about look at the mana bases that can enable Mystic Sanctuary, what you see is not only are they rich in islands, of course, but they tend to be more rich in the fetch shock mana base um, that we see a lot in modern, but maybe even more so because not only are you potentially running two to four shock lands, you're starting to run up to eight fetch lands as well. So something I found in, in my own playing with a variety of Mystic Sanctuary decks is that because you're so frequently fetching, whether it's fetch shock or just fetching to grab this Mystic Sanctuary, you're sometimes doing like four, five, maybe seven points of damage to yourself over the course of the game. So while mana is sometimes stretched to support Mystic Sanctuary, just so that you can meet that triple blue requirement, your mana also ends up being really painful for a deck that's actually running a ton of basic lands as well. Right. Yeah, just because you're trying to make sure that you can cast Uro when you want to and that you can do other things when you want to. And it also makes it hard to run utility lands, right? Like it's people do it all the time. So I'm not saying you can't, but people all the time run Mystic Sanctuary and Field of Ruin and Cryptic Command and and in a single deck. And you have to be really careful and think out what you're going to fetch up to try to minimize the impact of what happens if you draw too many field of ruins, for example, or, or something like that. Yeah. I think the, the practical impact of a mana base like that is on the one hand, you don't get to run as many mystics at that point, you might only be limited to one or two just because setting it up is so much harder, but you know, perhaps obvious, definitely worth noting. You can't grab mystic with a field of ruin field of ruin only gets basic lands so while field of ruin might be good on like turn three before you're even able to uh, play your mystic sanctuary and can even maybe then help set up a mystic sanctuary there is a little bit of a tension between those two lands in particular even though they do want to go in some of the same decks yeah and you can't run horizon lands you can't run as many creature lands as you wanted to so it does you are warping your mana base around being able to make mystic sanctuary work yeah i I think another really good example of like this cost and effect is in the is it prowess decks so there was a point where i was trying to do whatever i could to sneak at least one mystic sanctuary into my blue red spells deck because being able to like force a top deck manamorphose or mutagenic growth can be like game over in a lot of situations but in these low to the ground aggressive decks that really rely on having things like spire bluff canals or like these untapped fast lands that makes it so much harder to then enable your mystic sanctuary plays. So the 
consistency access that you're relying on is actually harder to set up. Yeah, and you know the big tension in that deck too was uh, when I was playing with it was I tried to run Mystic Sanctuary in a deck with Lava Dart, and like that that doesn't work because <laughs> you need mountains and you need islands and. Yeah, I mean, you you can't really possibly have enough islands consistently, right? To like, just to outweigh the risks of a tapped non-red source in that deck, right? Yeah, yeah. and I think that Stan brings up, by bringing up that deck, Stan brings up a, a good point that builds off of something he said earlier, which is, you know, decks that play this card are often going to run Cryptic Command as well because of the loopiness of it. You had asked Shane if there were places where people might run mystic sanctuary for value without having access to kind of a loop card and i think that blue red prowess is sort of an answer in no right like there's plenty of blue decks out there that won't run this kind of combo still like storm also does not would not run mystic sanctuary even though that uh effect might be helpful to it occasionally but it's similar has similarly has problems with having enough blue uh enough islands in play I think on some level we might see a day when we we actually witness Mystic Sanctuary pop up in some of those decks, but I think the cost is going to be much much more painful mana bases where you have to issue some of like really good cheap painless fast lands to play like eight fetches, four steam vents or four hallowed fountains, a bunch of islands and then like maybe one Mystic Sanctuary just because having that like one recursion can be the difference between winning or losing. Yeah, I mean, you do see Mystic Sanctuary come up in like Delver sometimes, right? Like the kind of in between mm-hmm. mana cost style deck. Um, yeah. So it happens. A lot of this is why Arkham's Astrolabe was banned, right? Was because it was making the Mystic Sanctuary decks have too easy access to Sanctuary plus whatever mana they wanted whenever they want. Yeah, this is the thing. Like you guys are talking about Field of Ruin and such, and and Everett talked about that a few weeks ago, right? It's like these multicolored control decks can play things like Mystic Sanctuary, play things like Field of Ruin, play three colors, and not really have a major issue. Yeah. So in the fair side of the deck of the bucket, it's card selection, deck consistency lets you control certain specific synergies within within your deck mystic sanctuary bolsters all of those different plans let's talk about the fun part now yes everyone's just waiting everyone who knows this car is just waiting for us to talk about this part right the loops this is what everybody talks about when they talk about mystic sanctuary it's the power and annoyance of non-deterministic quote-unquote infinite loops yay yay yeah, I remember like early on, it was kind of gimmicky, right? It was like, we can take all the turns, like we can rebuy time warp, we can dig a giga drows, exhaustion. But like, it's also a lot simpler than that, right? It's just like, you can just do a couple of cards. Yeah, I mean, I think the first deck that I remember really running this where it looked like they had a plan with it was um, the Urza, Simic Urza decks that Lotus Box had put together towards the end of last year. It kind of felt like before that, it was sort of its own thing and then they brought it into a deck that was already good as an additional package and that's where it really kind of went whoa this is like a powerful thing that controlish mid-rangey mid-rangey mid-control decks have access to all right so let's talk about some of the specific cards that enable loops the first one which is the most play right now is cryptic command and i think there's a real matter of feels versus reels when we talk about the cryptic command loop because 
On the one hand, Cryptic has this bounce ability as one of its modes. So you can pay for mana, counter spell, bounce any permanent. In this case, it's your own Mystic Sanctuary back to your hand so that you can then replay the Mystic, put Cryptic back on top. Or put something else on top if there's something more powerful than Cryptic in your graveyard. Some of the other effects that this could have is like the tap ability on Cryptic. So tap your opponent's board, bounce your Mystic back to your hand, and maybe it's every turn, maybe it's every other turn, but you can effectively prevent your opponent's creatures from attacking. But don't forget, if you're using Cryptic on an opponent's turn and you bounce the land back at that point, at instant speed, unless you have a way to draw an extra card on that turn or, or your next turn, you might not see the target of that Mystic Sanctuary until an entire turn later. And that's the delay that we were talking about. That's kind of like what it's built around, right? Like you, you're you hoping to have your draw engine online, like your Jace or your Teferi, and then get into the situation where what you're, you're brainstorming with Jace and you're able to get that card back over and over and over again, right? Or have two cryptics or something like that. That's the hope. Yeah. I think that we were going to get into this a little bit later in the notes, but should we talk about it now? Like, Yeah, we're here. We're here, right? So I feel like... The cryptic lock is something that people talk about and don't do very much. Kind of like starting a podcast or finishing your novel. What do you think about that, Stan? I think you're right. And I think it's because doing a cryptic loop profitably is actually a little harder than it sounds. And I think to illustrate this, it's worth it to kind of mention like some of the basic play patterns in the early turns of a control deck. Okay. So the earliest that you can potentially set up your cryptic loop is on turn four. And on turns like two through four, you're probably casting either removal spells like Path to Exile to deal with your opponent's creatures or other counter spells to really one-for-one resources. So by the time you get to turn four, it's not uncommon for you to be out of interaction with the exception of your cryptic command. So getting around that delay of putting something or cryptic command back on your hand, you know, it taking an extra turn to see that extra card, I think can be a real cost to the deck that potentially makes you super, super vulnerable as opposed to the two for one that cryptic command enables when you counter draw, because at least at that point, you know, you might draw into uh, something new and an unknown element of your deck. Right. Yeah, you don't want to run out of cards, right? Which can happen. And then if you're too reliant on getting Cryptic back over and over again, what happens is your opponent just plays two or three cards in a turn. You know, they just save up and then play a couple extra cards. And then you're kind of like, well, that didn't that didn't do me much good. Yeah, and especially if like you're casting Path to Exile in those early turns, you're actually getting your opponent up on resources too, which then potentially gives them more ways to like double spell. So even if you are trying to like back up your cryptic loop with another piece of interaction in your hand, um, something like Archmage's Charm or Spell Queller or even Mana Leak, it's not uncommon for them to be able to like start casting a three drop and a two drop because now they have all these extra resources that you gave them through your own removal spells. Yeah. What about the literal cryptic loop? Like one where you're actually able to cast it every turn somehow. I mean, that basically requires two cryptic commands in your hand. Yeah, or something that draws, right? Like to, like Big Teferi or something like that. That's happening later in the game. But have you ever pulled this off with a deck that had all the tools in it still? Sure, I've pulled it off. It's hard. 
you know, Cryptic is not a four of these days. It's still only a two or three of. And one of the reasons you get to only play two or three is not only do you recur it, but you're also drawing into it that the deck has a lot of draw effects, be it Shark Typhoon's Opt, even uh, the draw two on Archmage's Charm and the Planeswalkers. One of the things that you have to bear in mind is when you're doing these cryptic loops and you keep putting the same card on top of your library, you're slowing down the rate at which you get through your deck. So if you don't have like a win condition or a planeswalker or some other really powerful permanent, you're not really doing anything and you just create this fog effect and it feels more like a turbo fog deck than a control, you know, draw go control strategy. Yeah. See, that's interesting to me, right? It's like we talked about the value options that are available and like recurring cards that have value uh, on the current game state. And so there's, are you saying there's kind of a, a balance in terms of how much value am I getting out of recurring this card versus actually getting to a state where I can win the game? Yeah. Yeah. You still got to win. And I'm trying. I mean, we are playing Azorius Control. You don't really have to. You can just make him concede. Yeah, and MTGO, a real win condition with blue-white control is just getting your opponent's time clock to run out first, which is definitely a real strategy that I have employed. And I don't think that's bad manners, but that's actually like kind of the thing that Mystic Sanctuary enables online that it doesn't enable in paper. Because enabling that in paper, you know, you just end up going to time and then it's a draw. Weird subtleties between paper and digital magic, I guess. Absolutely. There are other loops that I want to mention you know, before Cryptic Command became the loop du jour, I was playing Deprive, which is blue-blue counter-target spell, return a land to your hand. And what happens is, on the one hand, Deprive changes the entire makeup of your deck. Because sometimes you're casting that Deprive on turn two. You know, if you're on the draw, you sometimes have to cash in that Deprive, even if it puts you down a resource, because your opponent's playing a super powerful effect on turn three. But that's kind of like the Crypto Command loop, I think, on training wheels, as well as making other cheap counter magic like Spell Snare or Mana Leak or, or Remand a little more effective. Because at that point, it's easier to have more action with your two mana, even though you're putting yourself down a resource early in the game. Yeah, and there are a couple of other cards too. I mean, you can play it with Tragic Lesson, which is what was kind of got it going in Popper. And also, you know, if you were in Legacy... At one point in time, you could have played it with Gush, though you can't anymore. So there's there's all these different kind of dimensions to it. God, I wish I could cash, cast a Gush. It's restricted in Vintage. I know. I cast it in Pauper a couple of years ago before it was banned, and it was it was glorious. My mono blue Delver deck. David or Shane, in, in your testing for this episode, did either of you manage to pull off a Cryptic Loop? And did you like feel like it was a little bit more powerful than maybe I'm even giving it credit for? I don't even know how to do that. I don't even know what, to, what I would do. Like after what, I, I put it back on top. Oh man, those blue things are weird. Yeah, I mean, I played Sultai Control some this week. And really, I think that the Cryptic Loop is one of those things that's like, it's good to have access to it. It's kind of like a threat of activation in like the biggest meta sense. You know, like when you bluff attack into an opponent with a creature that has an activated ability and you're like, come on, block me. Like it's sort of like that, but of a control deck where it's like, 
yeah, if you don't do something, I'm going to start cryptic looping you. Like, neither one of us have won. It's turn 12. It's going to happen if you don't do something. And then maybe they throw some resources at you to try and prevent it from happening. And then they lose because of that. Like, it felt a little bit more like it was more about the threat than the actual deployment of the loop to me. Shane, has anyone ever got you in a cryptic loop or maybe just irritated you by doing other annoying stuff with Mystic Sanctuary? You'd be surprised that I have not faced down. I don't think I've faced down the cryptic loop, at least recently. I can't remember. It's definitely the, the kind of thing that if I realized what was happening and I was playing like a human style deck or something like that, and they're just tapping my team and bouncing a cryptic back, I'd just be like, okay, bye. You like, you got it. Like that was, you, you set it up and you got it. Yeah, it's definitely, it's, it's, I think it's frustrating because, and the reason that I think cryptic is just more inherently powerful and like a deprive loop is that cryptic has modes, right? And it has the two for one sort of built into it as well. So you mentioned like a fog effect early on, Stan, but like if you're, if you're looping a fog creature decks really have a bunch of great outs to that besides maybe slipping a meddling mage through and naming cryptic command, but you're going to have so much mana um, and counter spells remaining to stop that meddling mage from hitting the, the battlefield that it's, it's likely an impossible task. It's like being in uh, uh, what's that artifact lock deck? The uh, KCI? No, the one before it, the popular one. Oh, anyway, Lantern, Lantern Control. Ever hear that one? Yeah, where like you have you have a, a percentage chance, perhaps, but it would require some bad play on the other on the opponent's end of things and insane luck on your own end. So it's just not going to happen. So basically, do you think you go for the the kind of quote unquote lock just when you're trying to buy time stand or when you're trying to turn a small advantage into a larger one, like a small draw engine advantage into a larger one? Or what, what do you think? When are you trying to deploy that instead of playing just really more being smart with the value game? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I think the lock is most effective when you have either a threat uh, on the board or a planeswalker, which which can be your threat. So Two Cryptic Commands, a Mystic Sanctuary, and a Jace is insane. Uh, you can exchange Jace with Big Teferi. I think that's insane. Shark Tokens, also fantastic in, in, in this regard, because once you're threatening that Cryptic Lock and you're holding up four mana every turn, if, if your opponent blinks and they decide not to cast anything into your Cryptic Command, you can potentially cash in all that mana for um, a flying 2-2. So that's really when the... I, I think the the loops are most effective. In the deprive loop, I think we used to see things like Delver of Secrets so that you can have like an early threat before you start potentially getting into, you know, counter magic territory, which is on turns two onward. Um, of course, Young Pyromancer used to see play to this effect as well, because then every loop also creates a threat in a 1-1 token. Yeah. I have a question for you two, and that's like, how... How hard this it sounds easy. It sounds easy to play this card to me, right? Where it's like, okay, I've got this in my deck. I can fetch it up with my fetch lands and I have a bunch of those. I'm gonna get my three islands in play. I'm gonna cast spells. And then when I see an option for getting a valuable spell or maybe setting trying to set up some kind of loop thing, I can I can fetch up my sanctuary and just get a lot of value off of it. There has to be more to it than that. This is magic. This is Modern control. <laughs> yeah. This is modern. There, tell me where I'm wrong and how I, how myself potentially and more likely members of the Dive Down Nation can uh, can play this card better and think about playing this card if they're new to it. 
So I don't think it's actually as easy as it sounds because like you mentioned, Shane, this is Azori's control. So even though this effect is powerful and it says right on the card what you're supposed to do with it, it goes into a very challenging deck. And it's not typical that your mid-ranger control strategies are creating decision trees from a single fetch land. You know what I mean? And figuring out the exact tool you use with that Mystic Sanctuary isn't always about the Crypto Clock. It might be about getting other cards that enable two-for-ones, even like Wrath Effects. Yeah. Or like, a, do I get my timely reinforcements here to buy me some time? Or do I play some removal spell? Or, you know, do I play some other kind of, do I need to dig through my deck and get some card selection? You know, I feel like there's got to be a lot of options and optionality is always challenging. I was going to say, you got to remember what's going to happen a lot with this deck is that you're going to get to a point where it's like, you can have mana leak, path to exile or opt with your mystic sanctuary. And you're like, cool. You know, I, I can do it. Do I want to do it? Do I need to do it right now? Like, sometimes you can gotcha people with a, you know, really tricky, like, Mystic into Mana Leak kind of play involving some other stuff. But, like, sometimes the cards are just kind of medium. And so it's like, why not just save it up for later? Other times it's worth it to go Mystic Sanctuary for an opt just because you need some gas to kickstart your hand. Um, there's all kinds of things. The other time I think it may be worth Mystic Sanctuary to grab an op because that's all that's in your graveyard is because then you have one piece of your loop puzzle later on as well so mm-hmm. even if you don't have fetch lands because bear in mind like sometimes you're top decking things like hallowed fountains field of ruins or just basic islands because your deck is still full of those that being able to like have half of your combo piece on the board just kind of waiting for you to use it while also being an effective resource it is tapping for mana i think actually gives you a good excuse to just like get that opt and maybe dig through your deck a little bit more or hold that opt for later when you start doing a loop and you can like actually dig through your deck while also threatening uh, a counter spell every turn yeah i mean the the trouble i had with the card similar to what stan is talking about is mana mana sequencing you know in the salt high deck was difficult in some ways because there are a few basic lands you know there's a basic swamp in the builds that i've seen and a basic forest as well in the builds that i've seen and it does come down to like how much pain do you want to take from your mana base to enable the the mystic sanctuary so that you make sure that you can still cast like abrupt decay on curve when you want to or you know heaven forbid that you want to cast leave fatal push and abrupt decay up and then you're just looking at your mana and you're like how can i do that and also get enough man islands for mystic sanctuary out like it's it's rough to think through that and then honestly there's even just the like level one stuff of hey remember that mystic sanctuary is in your deck don't blow off a fetch land for no reason like try to play lands other than fetch lands early so that you can have your fetch lands later like that's something you just have to remember forever now when you're playing this deck so something we like to do when we dive into a deck is talk about how to beat that deck what should people do if they're facing down someone who either has them in a mystic sanctuary loop or is potentially playing a mystic sanctuary deck so that's not necessarily blue white control that could be sultai that could be is it um could be wilderness reclamation and and maybe in some level this is like playing against control strategy but if your opponent is threatening this loop what do you try to do to get out of that situation or is it truly hopeless i mean the one thing i would say really quickly before we get into like the loop situation is just 
when you are playing against a Mystic Sanctuary deck, again, remember what people can do with their fetch lands. And remember that basically they're going to find a way to kill an extra creature off of that first or maybe second removal spell that they play against you. So try to think ahead and figure out what you can do to mitigate that particular risk, right? Maybe you try to hold back until they decide that they want to draw cards instead or, or, or something like that. Just try to think ahead with them because they are thinking several turns ahead as well, trying to figure out how to get the most value out of Mystic Sanctuary. So I think planning ahead is one of the first things you should do. And that's just kind of like a general good tip against control decks anyway, right? The other thing that I think you can do is try to go fast if you think that someone's going to try to cryptic lock you. You can't get locked under a cryptic if you win on turn three. That's right. And and I wonder if that has something to do with like the popularity of prowess right now is that it's able to like threaten kills before some of these mid-range or control strategies are able to do their most powerful stuff. Yeah. I mean, if you play like one threat a turn, then you're going to have a lot of trouble with Mystic Sanctuary. If you play a bunch of threats early, it's it'll help a a good amount more, especially since many of these decks don't run wraths anymore. I kind of feel like the presence of Mystic Sanctuary makes two other cards and decks really important. And one of them is Veil of Summer. Because as much as it hurts your soul to have your Crypto Command Veil of Summered, it probably feels a lot better for the person casting their Veil of Summer than like being in a situation where they're like getting fogged every turn and literally can't do anything. And hopefully we have time to revisit Sam Black's like position that this mystic's potentially the best card in modern. But I think Veil of Summer specifically enables this really simple tool that a lot of decks can play to prevent something like Mystic Sanctuary to get out of control and letting uh, control strategies to really run away with the format. I think that's a really good call. I mean, I also think that there's just a chance that like your own counter spells outside of uh, Veil Summer are really good too, right? Like if you are running, you know, if they go for Cryptic Lock when you are both low, a little low on mana and you spell pierce them, that's pretty good. If you dispel them like that, that's pretty good. Like cheap counter spells, Flusterstorm is probably another one that comes up a little bit more frequently than dispel these days. But just all things to keep in mind as far as like if you are playing blue, the tech that you want against them a lot of times is extra, you know, surprise, surprise, it's extra counter spells, extra cheap counter spells. And the last thing I think, too, is, you know, if you are playing a deck that has um, doesn't have access to that, but does have access to graveyard hate, I think graveyard hate is actually pretty good against the, the decks that really rely heavily on uh, Mystic Sanctuary, especially the ones that also have Uro. So we're talking your Bant deck, your Saltai deck, stuff like that, where they have a couple of different types of payoff cards that come into the deck uh, that use the graveyard. You know, having the option with Surgical Extraction to grab Uro or the card that they target with their first Mystic Sanctuary can buy you enough time to finish your the game on your side. Yeah, I think you also got to remember that you're potentially making their Snapcaster Mage is a lot weaker as well. Yeah, great. Yeah, that's totally true. Another payoff card there. I mean, even like just having Nihil Spellbomb up and sitting there waiting for them to try to do something with their graveyard can be another good way to approach it. And of course, don't forget Blood Moon, Mystic Sanctuary typed island, not a basic land. So if you get a Blood Moon out, it is tapping for red. Yeah, frequent 
list on uh, entry on the list of dive downs and anti-deck cards. Don't forget Blood Moon's okay. So is this a good chance for me to kind of revisit Sam Black's point and, and really ask you guys, do you think Mystic Sanctuary is the best card in modern right now? Uh, I will say really quickly that I think it's easily in the top five. And I think the reason is it's not any one particular part of it, but I think that it is one of those things where the the sum is so much greater than the parts and there's just so much you can do with it, especially as you get practice. And so I definitely think it's at the top of the list and enables a whole group of decks to be a lot better than they were before it existed. Yeah, this isn't quite like a Hogak or an Urza. This is more like a Faithless Looting, right? Where it's like, here's just a card that does so many little things to enable strategies and to enable a, a certain power level of those strategies, right? It just sort of elevates everything up to a level where people might get a little grumpy about it. But Stan, you've played it more than anybody else. You play more counter spells than anybody else sitting here right now. What do you think? I don't think there is a single best card in modern right now. And, and that's why Mystic Sanctuary isn't it. However, I do think that this tool, coupled with a, several other really incredible tools that we've gotten in modern in the last year um really since the release of war of the spark and modern horizons and a little bit before that with jace has made blue among the strongest colors in modern again and you know there was a long time where cryptic command was kind of an embarrassing card to cast or really put in your deck and we're not really in that period anymore and and teferi three has contributed to that force of negation of course has contributed to that um and I think it's really exciting that blue control players can have like a proactive strategy, whether it's because they're playing Stoneforge Mystic or because they just put like shark tokens in their deck, being able to do really powerful things with a bunch of elements of your deck, including your mana base, is something that leads to like an exciting period for control players. And, you know, sometimes we, we wonder whether Mystic Sanctuary is long for this world. I, I hope that it's not the linchpin that makes blue control powerful to fairy and uh, force of negation, I think help in a big way as well. But on some level, I do wonder whether mystic sanctuary is kind of like the glue, so to speak, that holds these control decks together and allows them to have like another way to get out of really sticky, challenging situations when they might otherwise be playing on, on the back foot. But Shane, I got to hear yeah. from you yeah. because, you know, historically you're not a control player. And yeah. I think in the past when I tried to like shuffle up control, even against you, you've kind of criticized me because, you know, they're not typically proactive strategies. And I've always been impressed by your ability to kind of like pick apart the vulnerabilities of a control deck in a modern metagame. I'm kind of curious, like, have we convinced you? to like mystics power level have have your experiences in modern kind of made you feel like control is is as good as i think it is right now yeah i think what makes control decks pretty darn good in in modern right now is like you said stan is like all these cards that have been printed that enables these decks to not necessarily be the traditional control decks of yore like these are proactive kind of larger controlling mid-range decks almost at this point. Like they're playing proactively. They present legitimate threats while still controlling the opponent's game plan, right? Like so that 
sort of started with maybe Stoneblade style decks. And then with these decks have been given more power through things like Shark Typhoon. Escape Shift decks are getting things like Ren and Six and Uro and Grow Spiral, um, not to mention that. And Simic Bant Shells are getting like Ice Fang and Uro and what is this Reclamation. So like this concept of playing reactively, at least in my mind, doesn't necessarily mean that your range of threats is as limited as it used to seem. Like it's not just like Celestial Colonnade Beats or Snapcaster Beats or something like that. Like, And I think that's a good thing, right? Because Wizards is printing enough tools into Modern where Control is able to keep up with all these other powerful strategies and all these other powerful cards and decks that are more linear and the mid-range decks that are getting more powerful tools all the time. And it makes it much more challenging also for those decks to have like these traditionally more straightforward sideboard plans against control as well. So like you can't just try to say, well, I'm going to make my deck a little bit faster, or I'm going to maybe bring in a a few things that can't be countered or something like that. Right? Like you have to try to prevent your opponent's Stoneforge mystic. You have to try to prevent your opponent's Uro out of the graveyard. You have to try to prevent their shark typhoon from resolving and getting them long-term value. And I think that it just seems like a great time for control fans to be playing modern and fans of all type, because you can have a powerful aggro strategy. You can have a powerful combo strategy. You can have a powerful mid range and a powerful control and all sorts of other nuanced decks that don't even fit in cleanly into those sort of four archetypes. And I think that's mystic sanctuary is a large part of that because it's one more kit of this uh, in the toolbox, one more tool in the toolbox, one more piece of the kit of parts that makes control as an entity something that can hang and be tier one so then that's my that's my treatise so then why did i only finish in 101st place at the mana traders tournament variance mm. always variance yeah mm-hmm. you're probably right run bad all right well thank you shane that was fun we got to talk about one of our favorite cards two-thirds of dive down hosts love playing mystic sanctuary one-third at least a believer All right, we're going to take a quick break, and when we return, we're going to wind down and do our full set spoiler analysis of Double Horizons. A lot of really interesting, powerful, modern staples Um, in there. Wait, there's a Double Horizons now? Um, I bet you there probably will be. Also, this episode is done. Stan, what are you you saying? Oh, okay, well then I... No, full full set review. I, I scheduled at least three hours. Tron is reprinted. You can buy it soon. Bye. That wraps up this week's show. If you haven't yet, make sure you subscribe to our podcast so you get the latest episode as soon as it comes out. And if you use Apple Podcasts, please consider leaving us a rating and review. If you'd like to submit a question to the podcast or pick our brains on something in Modern or Pioneer, you can tweet us at the dive down, all one word, or email thedivedown at gmail.com. If you'd like to support the show, you can join our Patreon. Find that at patreon.com slash thedivedown chat with us in our Slack channel, get some perks, get us to that $500 deck box tier. We have a bunch of people, including probably some listeners who aren't patrons yet, who would love the dive down deck box to finally come to fruition. I want to put my new Tron deck in there, which I'm probably going to build once all those cards get reprinted. So find that at patreon.com slash the dive down. As always, special thanks to the bands Nowhere and Spaceblood for letting us use their music. 
Also, shout out to Mana Traders for sponsoring the Dive Down. Sign up for Mana Traders using promo code the Dive Down, all one word, and now get 20% off your first three months of a Mana Traders rental subscription. And until next week, get out there and fetch Mystic Sanctuary! Sounded so good. Shane, Shane, you and I are always in sync. Dave, you're always half a second after us. Internet lag. I I don't somehow Tanner makes it work. He does. T-t-t-t-tanner. Podcast editor. <laughs>